0: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Having spent weeks and months falsely defining countless LGBTQ issues as sex crimes against children, Tucker Carlson began his Fox News program last night with a pious, almost serious, borderline concerned mention of the mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Saturday night and Sunday morning. And he said, quote, violence and cruelty should always horrify us. That is what Tucker Carlson said last night. On the night of September 19th, however, Tucker Carlson told his viewers to fight back against the LGBTQ community. He invoked together drag shows and transgendering and the castration of children, and he said, quote, no parent should put up with this for one second, no matter what the law says. Your duty, your moral duty is to defend your children, unquote no matter what the law says. This was only the starkest of his attempts to instigate violence against gays and transgenders and doctors and schools and teachers, the ones he claims are perpetrators of sex crimes, only the starkest of hundreds of such slanderous commentaries, because he is trying to attract an audience of conspiracy theorists whose bleak, distorted world leads them to believe Fox News and to believe in cabals of cannibals and pedophiles. Because if they watch his show, he makes more money. And Tucker Carlson has never spent a moment of his life being concerned about actual victims of child abuse or of any other kind of abuse or of any victims or indeed of anything or anyone except him and how much money he can make. Last night, Tucker Carlson identified the real victims of Colorado Springs, himself and his viewers. He said they were all under attack by those, quote, who have a deeply unhealthy fixation on the sexuality of children, which might better describe somebody like Tucker Carlson, who goes on national television and fixates at least once every week about the sexuality of children. Carlson dismissed the assertion that he contributed in any way, stochastically or otherwise, to the shootings in Colorado Springs, and the other assaults on the LGBTQ community, and he said it was an excuse to defend that, quote, unhealthy fixation on the sexuality of children, which, every time Carlson says it, and he says it a lot, sounds more and more like a disturbing admission and suggests the authorities should be investigating Tucker Carlson. The premise, of course, is that a television program like Carlson's, which Carlson and his employers, a company called News Corp, as dangerous to this country's survival as any terrorist organization, have defended in court by saying nobody should really believe that what Carlson is saying on that show is actually true. The premise of all of the Tucker Carlson's throughout history is that they can't be guilty of indoctrinating people to believe that every LGBTQ person or ally or doctor or teacher is a quote groomer. They can't be influencing people in that way, as if by remote control to shoot up gay bars in Colorado, because television can't have that kind of influence on people. This is while they are telling you that drag queens and teachers and transgendered people, they, they are the ones who are able to indoctrinate people remotely. Television can't. Tucker Carlson can't. A man dressed as Britney Spears can indoctrinate children into altering gender. But Tucker Carlson telling the people who watch his show perhaps a total of half a billion times a year that dressing up as Britney Spears is a sex crime, he can't indoctrinate anybody. Television can't make people do things. And that's why Tucker Carlson's ravings are interrupted by commercials from Golden Corral and Bass Pro Shops and the Telecaster of the Soccer World Cup, because television can't make people do things. Maybe Tucker Carlson believes that. Maybe that is why he doubled down on his self-martyring victimhood and his attack on the LGBTQ community while they are still cleaning up the carnage at Club Q. And somebody, somebody out there is planning to respond to this intentional hysteria in this nation by attacking the next gay or transvestite or transgendered person he sees. And where is that next person easiest to find if not at a public club or parade or other event? I worked with Tucker Carlson. To my knowledge, he believes in nothing. He has no principles, no scruples, no beliefs. No red line, no morals, except his desire for money and revenge. He was the mainstream Republican willing to share the stage with liberals on Crossfire on CNN and got fired. So then he became the reasonable face of deliberate conservatism on MSNBC and got fired. So then he was the intellectual far-right contributor on Fox News and got nowhere so then he turned into a polished version of a QAnon chat room selling Trump and replacement theory and transphobia, insisting to his audience that no parent should put up with this for one second, no matter what the law says. And he got his own nightly show at 8 p.m. every night and the top ratings in cable news. No parent should put up with this for one second, no matter what the law says. That is not his creed. That is his brand. Brand. He is worse than the creature who shot up the club in Colorado because Tucker Carlson may or may not believe a single word he says. He only believes in those words ability to make him money. He is a whore. God damn him to hell. And would that it were just Tucker Carlson, but it's not. Whenever there is a mass shooting and one of us says, but guns, the far right always responds, oh, it's too soon, or how dare you politicize death and grief, so thoughts and prayers. But if you will notice, after a shooting with a clearly defined hate basis, like in Colorado Springs, those on the right don't even slow down or say it's too soon to come back and spew more stochastic terrorism into the Swiss cheese minds of their viewers and supporters. Sometimes, though, they change it up a little bit. In the aftermath of the shooting, an interview appeared at the news site Semaphore with Mike Pompeo, former defense secretary, former secretary of state under Trump. Hard to believe, but it really happened. They asked Pompeo to identify the central issues that any Republican presidential candidate should run on in 2024. He's trying to be that candidate. And he answered, quote, making sure we don't teach our kids crap in schools which we are at the center of doing. Pompeo did not specify the crap. On the right, generally, the crap includes anything positive about minorities, especially LGBTQ, or anything negative about white Americans. Quoting Pompeo again, I get asked, who's the most dangerous person in the world? Is it Chairman Kim Jong-un? Is it Xi Jinping? The most dangerous person in the world is randy weingarten it's not a close call if you ask who's the most likely to take this republic down it would be the teachers unions and the filth they're teaching our kids end quote firstly that is as dumb a thing as any human being over the age of six could say to almost anybody It is literally by itself disqualifying for public office. And yet this baboon Pompeo is also the clown who once yelled at a reporter, do you think Americans care about Ukraine? He also insisted there would be a smooth transition in November 2020 to a second Trump term. And he's running for president. But more importantly, it's just the same thing Tucker Carlson said is saying will say, with the gun sight, the stochastic gun sight, moved over slightly to one direction, back to invoking words like kids and filth and danger and teaching, putting a target now on the head of the American Federation of Teachers Chief and of every teacher in this country, men and women who have for generations in this country, for centuries in this country, been underpaid Even the ones in the religious indoctrination schools are underpaid. Teachers who for the last two years have had to try to do their jobs for no money in the middle of a pandemic with the lives of kids literally in their hands because of school shooters and disease or the futures of kids still their responsibilities, though they are miles away and interconnected only by computer screens. The filth they're teaching our kids. Mike Pompeo, you are a braver man than I am. If I had said that about teachers, I would have disappeared from this country before morning. Because the teachers now are the next targets. That means when something happens, Mike Pompeo can dismiss the idea that his words could possibly have contributed to it. Of course not. I couldn't indoctrinate the stupid people of this country. And he will say that while somebody is working on his next Mike Pompeo campaign ad to run on television. Even though Tucker Carlson has reassured us that words on television cannot possibly actually influence anybody to do something they wouldn't otherwise do as Tucker Carlson throws to a commercial for Tommy Copper. Still ahead, Bob Iger returns to run Disney, meaning I can return to the advice he gave me in March 1979, and it's still the best advice I have ever gotten in my life. Courage and cowardice at soccer's World Cup. Iran's players protest by refusing to sing their national anthem, but the captains of six European squads give in to the homophobic hosts in Qatar. And this day used to be as mournful and reflective a day as there was on the American calendar. A day everybody knew. The anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. I am just old enough to be able to remember what us four- and five-year-olds that day thought was happening 59 years ago this afternoon. That's next. This is Countdown. This is 54321. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Still ahead on Countdown, it's 59 years now since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Back then, us kids knew something was wrong. We couldn't be sure what because there were no cartoons on TV and all the adults were crying. The story of that awful day coming up. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. Let me repeat Elaine Boozler's wonderful offer about the Kill List at the New York Pound here and ask if there's somebody who can do something very special. From her charity, Tales of Joy, Elaine says, anybody who adopts a dog from the New York shelter on the Kill List gets a year's worth of food and regular vet care and other supplies. We only have two beautiful bonded dogs whom they are ready to kill. They are both on that list. Cottage is the girl. Chef is the boy. They are big shepherd mixes, and they will need work and training, but half their problems will be alleviated the moment they get out of prison. And your big expenses will be covered by Elaine. Look for them on my Twitter feed for dogs in need, at Tom Jumbo Grumbo. I thank you, and cottage and chef thank you. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Louisville, no change in the James Comer scandal. He is the incoming chairman of the House Oversight Committee and has promised investigations of Joe and Hunter Biden, but will not comment on whether or not he will investigate the claims of his college girlfriend, Marilyn Thomas, that he beat her, threatened her life and tried to cover up his own role in aborting their child by trying to force her to not use his name on the paperwork. Dateline Los Angeles. Two years after retiring, the retired Disney chairman Bob Iger did a Jay Leno and replaced the man who replaced him, Bob Chapek. Rumors swirl. Iger may spin off ESPN or buy Netflix or both. The ESPN thing is ironic, as you will hear shortly, because I wanted to mention that Bob Iger gave me the single best piece of advice I have ever received. He gave it to me in 1979 and nobody has topped it that I have passed it along to others at least a thousand times. When I was a senior in college, people I had worked with at my internship at Channel 5 in New York sent me to see him for job-getting advice. He was then the husband of one of the news assignment editors at the station, and he was a vice president of ABC's Wide World of Sports program. Plus, he had gone to Ithaca College, and I was at Cornell, so there was the upstate New York geography thing. Bob recounted that while he was in school, he had freelanced as a television sportscaster in the area, and that was his career goal. He said that as he graduated, he was offered two jobs. One was as a sportscaster on the weekends at Channel 5 in Syracuse for $10,000 a year. The other, after his internship there, was as production assistant at Wide World of Sports for $10,500 a year. Iger told me he thought long and hard about this decision and decided on the wide world of sports job because one, it was in New York and not Syracuse, and he was from New York, and two, $500 was a lot of money in 1973, and three, he figured once he established himself he could move laterally from being a producer or similar to being on the air. In fact, Bob told me when I met him a scant, 44 years ago next Fair March oh my goodness because I had been on TV so much he said I was soon promoted to chief production assistant then to associate producer then they found out I'd taken economics classes at Ithaca College and somebody asked if I could help out with the budgets next thing I know I'm vice president of budgeting for Wide World of Sports I still want to be a sportscaster but it's six years later and if I want to do it I still have to go to Syracuse where they are now paying 11000 a year But I have a wife and a child now to take care of, and the job I'd have to quit here at ABC pays me six figures. So here's my advice to you. If you want to be on the air, be on the air. Don't take some other kind of job in radio or TV just because it pays better, or you can live in New York or live with your parents. Be on the air. Tremendous advice. Good luck, Bob. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, day three of the World Cup dawns, and temporary soccer fans here can probably put away the words pitch, nil, and kit for another few years. As the joke goes, the U.S. lost to Wales one to one. Wales is the size of Iowa. More importantly, two days in Qatar and the thing is already a train wreck. The members of the Iranian team took the field against England yesterday and when Iran's national anthem played, the players did not sing it. They had done this before in September, before the protests in their homeland turned acute and the dictatorship's reaction savage and bestial. Iranian players risked everything by not singing their anthem at the World Cup. On the other hand... The captains of England, the Welsh, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, and the Dutch were going to wear anti-discrimination armbands in their opening World Cup games, simple bright bands on one sleeve saying one love. Just before play began, FIFA, soccer's international governing body, opened 24-7 for bribes, warned that any player wearing the armband would be given a yellow card by the referee. It would be considered a violation not of tournament rules, which would lead to a fine, but of game rules, which would lead to a punishment. Two yellow cards, and you are ejected. You would get one for just wearing this armband. The six captains and their countries promptly chickened out because they're losers. The Iranians put their lives at risk for what mattered to them, but the captains of six liberal democracies immediately folded giving way to the homophobia written into the laws of the host country, Qatar, which should not be the host country of this or anything else. They did so instead of saying something like, oh, no armbands? Then we're not playing the game. Only England came out of all this with even a measure of self-respect intact. Alex Scott, a former member of the English women's national team who is now part of the announcing crew for the BBC, wore the One Love armband anyway, live, on TV, from the sidelines. Also in sports yesterday, baseball's Hall of Fame ballot was announced. There is only one serious candidate among 14 newly eligible ex-players, or there would be, but he is Carlos Beltran, whose career wins above replacement total puts him in the Gary Carter, Larry Walker, John Smoltz range. But Beltran was so heavily implicated in the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal in 2017 that when it hit, he was fired by the New York Mets, who had just hired him as manager. This would usually leave the field clear for holdovers, but the only serious also rans there last year did not seem to be on trajectories for election. Scott Rowland, the third baseman, Billy Wagner, the relief pitcher, Todd Helton, the slugging of first baseman of the Rockies. I think Rowland is a Hall of Famer, maybe Wagner. I will never have a vote. Other newcomers on the ballot this year are fan favorites like Jason Wirth, Bronson Arroyo, Matt Kane, and Jacoby Ellsbury, and after 56 seasons as a fan, I am beginning to think my baseball affection is slipping. I could have sworn until I read that he's now on the Hall of Fame ballot that Jacoby Ellsbury was still on the roster of the New York Yankees on the injured list. Ahead, there is a date somewhere in our history. Everybody born before that date knows what today is the anniversary of. Everybody after it might, or might be reminded of it, or might never understand it. I am just old enough to be able to tell you what we kids thought 59 years ago today when JFK was assassinated. Next. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze CNN Steven Collinson identified as a senior political reporter there and clearly out to prove both sides ism is in charge in the paste eating world of new boss Chris Licht. The headline on Collinson's piece on the CNN website, quote, dueling probes into Trump and Biden could define the 2024 campaign, 32 paragraphs of this crap. Quote, a storm of investigations targeting leaders of both political parties will shape the 2024 campaign, but risks angering voters who just showed their frustration with their priorities being ignored. 32 paragraphs which equate the appointment of a special counsel to decide about prosecuting Trump for mishandling documents or espionage or treason or inciting the January 6th coup attempt and that's the same as kevin mccarthy's appointment of committee heads to investigate joe biden in order to generate sound bites for fox news not one word about the impact of either of the quote dueling probes on you know the future of representative government in this country hey licked this collinson guy he's a keeper you can have him anchor at nine Runner-up, another old friend, Cesar Conde, chairman of NBC News. The Daily Beast's confider media newsletter reports, quote, a crisis of confidence at 30 Rock with two causes. First, when hired in 2020, Conde pledged to have a 50% diverse workforce, yet in the last month, he has abruptly fired an African-American anchor, Tiffany Cross of MSNBC, and an LGBTQ anchor, Shepard Smith of CNBC. The second cause, quoting Confider, another bone of contention has been Conde's decision to pay Rachel Maddow $30 million to work less, a move that the staffers said had been particularly galling at a time when many NBC employees enter the holidays, fearing they'll soon face layoffs. How could you have a crisis of confidence in Cesar Conde? You had confidence in him in the first place? But our winner, Kaylee McEnany of Fox News. Yes, that's right, I've completed the cable news hat trick. CNN, NBC, and now Fox. The Fascist Channel has yet to launch its annual telethon against the war on Christmas because it is yet to finish its new telethon against the war on Thanksgiving. Its Monday edition of Outnumbered was devoted to attacking the actor John Leguizamo for tweeting, Happy Indigenous Survivors Day, F Thanksgiving. Kaylee McEnany's contribution to this: she described Leguizamo as, "quote, a man named John whose name I cannot pronounce." Hey, Kaylee, we all saw you when you were Trump's White House propaganda secretary. All names are names you cannot pronounce. Kaylee McEnany, or as Joe Rogan called her, Kaylee McEnany, today's worst person. How do you pronounce this next word? Oh. IN THE WORLD! Uh. To the number one story on the countdown and things I promise not to tell, and I am probably one of the youngest people you know who has a distinct memory of the Kennedy assassination. On this sad anniversary, understand how old this memory is. Me telling it to you now is the equivalent of somebody on that day, 59 years ago, November 22nd, 1963, telling me of his childhood memories of the 1904 election, or somebody in 1925 going on about the Civil War, or more appropriately, the day Lincoln was shot. On November 22nd, 1963, I was two months and five days shy of my fifth birthday, I was in kindergarten, and we finished every Friday around noon, and I was already home and in my room, and the reason I can see it so distinctly is that just weeks before, my folks had bought a new television, black and white, of course, crystal clear picture, or so we thought, and it was the first new one they had bought in eight years. And they took the old television, a gigantic thing that required its own rolling stand and had a speaker the size and the tan color of a hi-fi record player and had the giant rabbit ear antennas that you hear about in satires these days. And they rolled that thing into my room and set it up, speaking of rabbits, under my giant Bugs Bunny wall clock with the ears pointing to all the characters in the cartoons. I was in my room watching cartoons, luxuriating in my newfound television ownership, No other kid I knew had their own TV. And my mother was out in our tiny living room in our tiny house in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, when I heard her shout. And not long after I heard the phone ring, it was in the kitchen, the phone, and it had a cord so long that it could stretch into the living room. And it was quickly apparent that if my mother was not crying, she seemed about to. I came out and stood next to her, and she said, Your father wants you to go in the room and close the door and watch the cartoons. He will be home soon. This made no sense. I was a kid. I was not an idiot. I was still aware of time. It was the middle of the afternoon, and Dad would not be home on the train from New York before 6. At least he wasn't supposed to be. But I went back into my room. I did not fully close the door because I was something of a sneak. And soon I heard my mother tell my father to be careful and hurry back home. The next thing I heard was her back in the kitchen dialing the phone. And these were the days of the rotary phones, where if you had to dial the number nine, it took several seconds to move the rotary dial clockwise and even longer for it to rebound to the starting point counterclockwise. And each time you did this, it made so much noise, it sounded like somebody trying to start the electric lawnmower or maybe a prop plane. Given enough quiet on the street, you could hear it from outside. Well, that noise gave me cover to sneak back into the hallway about halfway between my room and the living room. And I heard my mother say, my God, Barbara, did you see? Kennedy's been shot. What's going to happen next? It was her sister-in-law, my Uncle Bill's wife, Barbara. Barbara and Bill lived in Connecticut at that time. This was a long distance call. I am not sure if they got off the phone before my dad got home more than an hour later. I am confident my mother told Aunt Barbara that she heard Walter Cronkite say three men shot Kennedy and she would insist that for the rest of her life. Now I went back to my room and started changing the channel, another feat of strength in 1963. You had to literally change the dial. I settled on channel two. And yes, at age four, I occasionally watched the news. I certainly had an idea who the president was and who John F. Kennedy was. And although it is lodged in my memory that 59 years ago today, I was not sure that they were one and the same person. But what I could tell was that either Kennedy or the president, or both of them, or they were the same person, had been shot in some place called Dallas. I didn't know what the president did, per se, but I had figured out a lot earlier, mostly because of the coverage of John Glenn and the other early astronauts, that anything on television that wasn't a cartoon or a comedy or a Western or a ball game or a thing with doctors or something designed to scare the crap out of me, like the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits, anything but that was necessarily important, often very important. The rest of that day is largely a blank except for dinner. I ate, my parents did not. I have some memory of them putting me to bed impossibly early for a Friday night, with the excuse being that we were going to see the Carls the next day in New Jersey. The Carls were friends of my folks. I think my mother knew her from a bank she had worked at. They lived in Westfield, New Jersey, an hour away, across the George Washington Bridge and everything. And maybe every three or four weeks or so, either we would go see them or they would come see us, and our trip had long since been planned. The Carls had two boys, one a couple of years older than me, one just slightly younger. I can remember the trip only because one of my joys at the age of four and five was looking for all the different kinds of cars, and on that Saturday, I was sorely disappointed there weren't any cars. The roads were deserted. First, my folks didn't eat. Today, they didn't talk, and now there was nobody on the streets or the parkways or the bridge. Something was really wrong we got to the carls faster than i could recall ever having done so ordinarily mr carl loved to quiz me about the cars i'd seen but on that saturday in the 23rd he and his wife simply said a quick hello to me and then their boys and i were rushed into their room and for all i know they locked us in i last saw these two guys around 1969 their dad was in the petroleum industry and they had lived in venezuela and i think they went back there so forgive me i don't remember their names but as soon as Mrs. Carl slammed their door shut, the older one said to me, all right, what's wrong with the grown-ups? Why are they all crying? And I remember telling them that Kennedy had been shot. And I thought Kennedy was the president. And the older one gulped and asked, shot with a gun? We put on their ancient black and white TV and went looking for something to watch. And there was nothing on except men sitting at desks looking ashen, even on the black and white TVs of 1963. But I'm confident we did not realize that they were talking about Kennedy and the assassination. We just knew they were not supposed to be there on our TVs. Saturday morning belonged to kids. On a Saturday morning, the only two of the seven New York television stations would not ordinarily be wall to wall with cartoons until 11 a.m. or noon or later. One was the educational station, Channel 13. The other was Channel 5, and they had a kids' show with a live studio audience full of kids and games and clowns and whatever. On the others, we could rely on Quick Draw McGraw and Bugs and the like, but on this Saturday morning, they were playing what sounded like church music, and the only thing they displayed was their channel number and the call letters of the station. Maybe they ran out of cartoons, said the younger of the Carl brothers. Even at age four, I understood television better than I did assassinations. They don't run out, I said. They just play the same ones over and over again. Haven't you noticed? It amazed me that he hadn't noticed. And it was at this point that I began to really worry about what was happening. Anytime one of us left the brother's room to use the bathroom, the adults would stop talking. They were stopping in mid-word. Meanwhile, the three of us kids had played every board game the brothers had, and the older of them asked their parents to let us go outside and play, and he came back shaken because they had said no. They always want us out of the house. What's wrong? On the way home to Hastings, and I think we had been there long enough that it was getting dark already, my parents finally filled me in. At some point later, before I went to college, I remember asking my mother what she told me and when, And she said they had waited until the second day because they believed there was a chance Kennedy had been killed by the Russians and that there would be a war. And remember, we had almost had a war, almost a nuclear war, 13 months earlier. That I have no memory of. I guessed that it was easier to tell me in the car because they didn't have to hide their faces from me. So I would not see if they were crying. My mother did say she was amazed that I had figured out what had happened and that it had shocked all the adults without really understanding what any of it meant. She thought by Saturday evening it was pretty clear the Russians had not killed President Kennedy, and as bad as it was, it was not going to get worse. So they might as well tell me what I could understand, and they decided it was safe enough to let me go outside and play again. This, my mom was pretty confident, meant that I was sitting there with them on Sunday the 24th, probably over lunch, when Lee Harvey Oswald was himself assassinated on live television. I think she's right. I recall them changing the channel away from CBS, which they rarely did, for once, because they had just started to run some sort of report from Roger Mudd. My folks could not abide Roger Mudd. No offense, they just couldn't. Only ABC and NBC showed the murder of Oswald live. I'd love to recount my reaction or my folks, I can't remember it. I also have no idea what happened in school that following short week. It was Thanksgiving coming up, and for all I know, they canceled the three days worth of classes. I do remember that as the shock of the assassination wore off, my father was angry about something comparatively trivial. He had, for the first time in his life, as a native New Yorker, gotten actual reserved bleacher seats for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. 34 years he had waited for this, but now it was obvious that there were only two choices. Either they would cancel the parade outright, or they would make it the briefest, grimmest parade in New York City history. They chose the latter. My memory is that my dad took me, but my mom stayed home Our location was at Broadway and around 50th Street, and I asked my dad what all the black stuff was on a couple of the buildings. It was mourning crepe. Some of the buildings were adorned with black mourning crepe, as if we were there for Kennedy's funeral procession, not the ceremonial first seasonal appearance of Santa Claus. At one point, a group marched by with a huge American flag wrapped in mourning crepe, bigger than the flags themselves. A year ago, I found the box of slides that my dad, an inveterate photographer, took of that parade. It is amazing that the sense of shock and of people pretending to be happy to be at a parade is either retained by the images from that November 28th, or it sparks my own emotional memories of the weird, disturbing experience. There were the traditional Thanksgiving balloons, By the time Donald Duck got to us, he was losing air rapidly. He'd gotten punctured somehow, if you want a metaphor, for November 1963. There were bands, there was Santa, and it was warm. It was 60 degrees. Coats were open. Hats were off. But more than anything else, it was almost silent. You could hear kids throughout. The younger, the louder. But you could hear them from the other side of the parade... It was as if you went to a ball game and the public address system didn't work. It's actually quite a relief for the first few minutes. I am convinced I could hear the shoes of the band members hit the pavement as they walked past me. There is only one other thing from my childhood about the Kennedy assassination that I remember carrying the kind of shock like those first few days of observing all the disoriented and, as my friend in Jersey noted, crying adults. In 1970, might have been 1971, but I'm pretty sure it was 1970 when I was in the eighth grade. All of our classes were canceled late one morning, and we were gathered in the school chapel for a special assembly. We had a lot of assemblies there, but never as late as 11 a.m., Some guy came in, and I have thought and asked and researched and have figured out nothing about who he was. But he had a copy of something almost none of us, and by us I mean Americans of 1970, had ever seen before. It had been on television, local television, a couple of times, but it would not be shown on national television in whole for another five years. The speaker called it the Zapruder film And as much other assorted film from that day as any JFK documentary I saw before I was an adult, he showed that too. And while I do not remember him espousing any of the conspiracy theories that by then had become a constant in our country, that might be because he showed us the Zapruder film the way Kevin Costner showed it in the Oliver Stone film JFK. We must have seen the fatal shots 20 times at every speed slower than real time. I think we were all ordered back into our respective history classes where shocked students listened to even more shocked teachers, and we asked the same questions the Carls and I did on November 23, 1963. What's wrong with the (laughs) grown-ups? I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. If you're not following or subscribed or whatever to the podcast, please do so and stop a passerby in the street and get them to as well. Here are our credits. Most of the music, including our theme here from Beethoven's Ninth, arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Ulberman theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Stevie Van Zandt. And everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 686th day, since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. There'll be a new episode tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olderman. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. (laughs) Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.